By his Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to present again and to delve deeper, Lord, into the realm of the mind and addiction. We just ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, so that, Father God, we would be wise in our approaches, not only to our own health, but even as we approach others um, who may be facing addiction. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to start a few slides in, um, just giving some background numbers. In 1962, 4% of the population over 12 had used illicit drugs. By 1985, 33% had used and 23% were using regularly. By 1990, 80% of teenagers and young adults have at least experimented, and I'm sure these numbers are even higher now uh, with the influx and popularity of, of marijuana. An estimated 4.7 million Americans have tried methamphetamines. 2.3% of pregnant women are current drug users. That was in 1995. One of the biggest problems we have in Orange County in the health department is we have um, a program for drug-addicted moms and the pregnant mothers, and I'm amazed that even in pregnancy, the amount of methamphetamine, alcohol, nicotine, um, uh, even cocaine is used, and of course it causes major problems to the, to the fetus and to the birthing process. One out of four um, U.S. families suffer from drug or alcohol-related problems. So many of us ha have family members that, were, uh, that are addicted or were addicted. Um, I think a fourth is a very low number, actually. Um, 29% of all Americans 12 and older smoke. An estimated 13 million Americans are alcoholics. One million addicted to cocaine and more than 600,000 are heroin addicts. The, uh, the average age of initiation of use of drugs, look at this. Alcohol is 10 to 11 years old. And how does that happen? How, do, how does a 10 or 11 year old get alcohol? Family. Usually you go to a wedding, you go to parties, and the kid is around and every time they're there, people are letting them drink a little bit of beer, they let them drink a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And at a very early age, while the brain is still developing, they actually begin to take on a liking for the substance. Um, you know, and I mean, I, my family, um, Jamaicans use a white rum. It's really potent. It's actually flammable rum. It's so strong. And I mean, they put it in the cake. And a lot of even at Venice um, <laughs> Jamaicans, that's the way that, that's, if they're going to get alcohol, that's how they get it. Because they take the cake and then they're like sitting it out in this rum. And then, you know, two days later, take it out, cut it up, f frost it, whatever they do, and you eat it. And you, you, I mean, you actually can get a buzz just from the cake. So, Alcohol can get to kids a lot of different ways, and, that, and stuff like that cake is one of them. Um, illicit use of pre prescription drugs started at 11. What drugs and what, what do you think is happening where kids would actually be on drugs at 11 years of age? Prescription drugs. Parents' cabinets is big. We see that a lot, actually, in emergency rooms now. But also, they're being treated for stuff like ADHD with Ritalin, which is an amphetamine. Um, and so a lot, or in pain medicines, even. Uh, in little in young children, and so a lot of them, that's where they're really getting into illicit drugs. Hallucinogens are big. I mean, I used to see um, these sniffers and stuff, and they take household products and sniff them. Glue. Um, the, I don't know if you noticed, but the dextromethorphan, the DM of Robitussin DM, the DM is not is also a drug of abuse. Um, the reason you can't get Sudafed in anything, because they take the Sudafed and make crystal methamphetamines out of Sudafed. Um, so there's a lot in just Household products, paint, paint thinner, 
how to even figure out this stuff gets you high, I don't know, but a lot of the deaths that we call suicides are often overdoses um, and vice versa. Um, when we do a look at our child death review team. Tobacco at about age 13, isn't it interesting how tobacco would actually come later? That's partly because you can see it. I mean, you know, and so the kids don't want the smell of it. But marijuana, 13 to 14, cocaine, 15 to 16. When I was in high school, when I was in high school in Miami, there was a, a, a thing where in the junior high, seven girls uh, had overdosed. And these were very wealthy families. We, we, we were busted into a very, very, very wealthy public school system. And these young girls that all, like two of them overdosed on the cocaine in the parking lot of the junior high before school. Um, so kids get into some of this stuff very early. 33% um, of female heroin addicts say men influence the decision to use drugs. Only 2% of men said a woman influenced them. Girls are now 15 times more likely than their mothers to use illicit drugs. So girls are, are, are an issue. About 40% of crack cocaine addicts are women. Um, crack being an incredibly addictive substance and actually one of the few drugs that only one hit is all it takes. And you can actually become completely fully addicted. Um, and that, that has been pretty well documented. That's not everybody, but there are people just one hit and they're addicted for life. So money spent on addictive activities or different activities. Um, gambling, look at that. Um, 30, in 1992, there was $33 billion. This kind of still holds out. Gambling is huge. This is one of the reasons why Arnold Schwarzenegger for a while there was trying to go after Indian gaming in California. Because really there was a huge, there's a huge revenue source that isn't really being fully tapped into. But uh, there's a lot of money there locally in the state of California. But when you take it to like uh, Las Vegas, it just goes through the roof. <clears throat> the amount of money that is uh, gambled in a city like Las Vegas is, is not even, you wouldn't even believe it. Um, and that's how they get the money to develop, you know, the strip in, in, um, in Vegas. Um, <clears throat> some of the other addictions that are important to look at, sexual addictions, we, we talk, about, talk about briefly, um, is a major problem now, even with pastors. Um, we're having these problems now where more and more pastors are coming out from all denominations claiming to have um, pornography addictions. Um, gambling is a big addiction problem still. Thrill-seeking is serious. Um, we see people do crazy things for a thrill and then they wind up, you know, literally dying. Um, and carbohydrate and food addiction, which has a lot to do with serotonin. Um, and so if life is too exciting, the orange area says, you know, you, you, it's uh, satiety is an issue. Life is boring down in the bottom right corner here. People are looking for arousal. Life is impossible. They want to escape. They get into fantasy stuff. Life is painful. They get into evasion. Where you fall, if you're not in a normal emotional state in here and you live in one of these areas, you actually begin to try and find a way to deal with it. And this is where drugs, there's a drug, there's drugs for people who want to come down, drugs for people who want more excitement, drugs for people who want fantasy, and drugs for people who want to escape. And that's how a lot of times how people get a drug of choice by their life experiences. Uh, behavior that supports survival not only aids in survival, it also creates a pleasurable feeling that reinforces that behavior. We talked about that with dopamine. Um, uh, mood is therefore linked to behavior. Once we go outside of a normal mood, we will behave to produce a feeling of normal mood and depression is feeling that you will not survive. And that's what a lot of people really get into. So we talked about serotonin, dopamine, GABA, norepinephrine, endorphins. Um, 
Serotonin, let, let me go back, I actually hit this slide. But serotonin is the one that really relaxes you. It makes you feel satisfied. And you get it, um, the way that you actually get serotonin is that it, it, the precursor is an amino acid called tryptophan. Um, and what tryptophan does is, it goes through the blood-brain barrier, it goes into your brain, and your brain is able to put serotonin together and make serotonin, and you feel satisfied. But it's also very sensitive to insulin and how much carbohydrate you eat. So what happens is, turkey, for example, has a lot of um, tryptophan, but has a lot of other amino acids. So they compete to get into the brain. There's so much tryptophan, usually it gets in. So people like turkey, they say, because it has this, and so it makes you feel very satisfied. Well, the problem is, when you eat like a regular hamburger, all the carbohydrates make this massive release of insulin, right? So the insulin wants to store everything, and what happens is all of the other amino acids, along with the sugar, because your brain only works on sugar, go rushing into your brain. When you eat something like a hamburger that's not very serotonin specific in that it has a lot of tryptophan and no, no other amino acids, when it comes into your brain, what happens is it competes and you don't produce a lot of serotonin. So these other amino acids beat the, the tryptophan in and you get all these other amino acids in your brain, but you can't make serotonin, so you don't feel satisfied. And the American diet basically is a diet that will make you not feel satisfied on an emotional level. So the Happy Meal, actually, it's not a very happy meal. Um, and that's one of the reasons why people actually kind of have to keep going back to this stuff because you never really get the feeling of fullness in an emotional way that you would get with certain other foods. More healthy, whole grain foods, um, foods like tofu, soy-based products have a lot of tryptophan and nothing else in them, so they actually do a lot for the serotonin release. Um, but without that, then you get the feeling of anxiety once your serotonin levels are lower if you're not making serotonin properly. And then people come to the urgent care and say to me, you know, I'm always anxious, I'm always uptight, I want a pill. And they want Prozac, they want Zoloft, they want all these other drugs so that the pill will fix the problem. But because the diet is really a big part of it, and lifestyle is probably a big part of it, not getting enough sleep and other things, it just never works. And the pills ultimately can really make the whole thing a lot worse in the final analysis, because people usually can't stay on them forever. And they have to switch to another one, and that has side effects, and some of them are uppers, and some of them are downers, and it really can get pretty ugly um, pretty fast. Um, let me see. Let me skip this one. So how do you form habits? So one of the things we want to talk about is habits, because in general, many of us won't use drugs. We don't use alcohol. Or if we, you know, or we, or we did and we don't anymore, but we do all have this innate ability to make bad habits or good habits. So habits, I believe God designed us with habits to make things easier. And if you think of it this way, man was designed, God designed us to live forever, right? So it would, it would only make sense that if you're going to live a, even if you go back before the flood and you're going to live 700 years, it would make sense that you learn things and every time you do it, it gets easier because. You got 700 years to do it. You know what I mean? So you, need, you, you don't want to constantly be relearning whatever it is that you're doing. So it's made so that every time we do it, it's easier. That ability to learn in that manner is, is, is almost uniquely human. It's, it's very uniquely human, but not, not completely. Some animals kind of show that as well. Every action is received and passed down the nerve cell, like we talked about before. Um, the dendrites receive the messages. The axon send a message to the next cell. Um, the bottom was cut off. Oh. 
me see if I can. Oh, it doesn't work over there. But so the synapses are space, but I, I didn't know it was cutting off a part of it. <laughs> the neurotransmitters such as acetylcholine traverse the space to send messages. Acetylcholine isn't like some of the other ones we discussed. Acetylcholine actually has to do a lot with memory. So what happens is the French scientists used an electron microscope and found that around the end of the nerve endings, there is what they call boutons, and boutons is French for buttons. They look like buttons, and every time, so let's take typing, for example, that's a neutral habit, right? Every time you type, what happens is you learn the keys a little better, your brain is able to go a little faster than the time before because these boutons actually strengthen the neurons in your brain that say that this index finger should be placed here, that button is there. And every time you type, they get stronger and stronger and stronger. So that the next time you type, theoretically, you type faster than the time before, especially if you're doing it in close proximity. And that's why practice theoretically makes perfect. Right? You take a baseball bat and you have a coach and they're telling you how to swing the bat every single time. Every time you swing it, it's a little bit easier to do the right motion, the right movement. Every single time. So practice actually does help. And so every time, studying for tests, it, it all, all works the same way. Um, so if an act is repeated um, more, the buttons are made, and repetition deepens the groove, making that action or thought easier to repeat. That's how we form habits on a neural, from a neuroanatomical standpoint. We literally change the brain structure on, an, on a cellular level, literally change it. So that now, and when I go to type, as slow as I used to type in seventh grade when they taught me typing, I'm surprised myself sometimes at how fast, how fast I can type. Right, because I type every day. I get on a keyboard and I type something that you know I wouldn't have done 30, 40 years ago. You know, everybody didn't have keyboards in their offices. There were typists, and you trans, and you you know you kind of dictated and they did the typing. But most of us type faster. It's all because of this. The problem is this also works if your bad habit is riding a bike very fast and coming to a screech. Right? It's a lot easier to do it the second time. If it's not wearing a helmet, if it's whatever the habit is, if it, I mean, and I mean, I can go into really bad behaviors like pornography or gambling, but every time you do a cigarette, it's not just that you get a, a dopamine nicotine thing, you also get this acetylcholine memory piece as well. And that's why there's a habit part of it. Just doing this becomes a habit for the smoker. Not just the chemical part, but also this. So if you want to treat addictions, one of the things you have to do is you have to separate out the habit part from the chemical addiction part. So you have to say, okay, they have a nicotine addiction. That's where we talk about diet, exercise, water, those types of things. But you also have, what do you do with their hands now? What do they do with their hands so that they're not, that the habit that they've created of doing this 50, 70, 80, 100 times a day, what do you do with that now? And that's one of the challenges. So we would tell them at the VA hospital to take straws and cut them the length of cigarettes. He's right, what a lot of people do is they start eating. <laughs> that's how they replace it, and then that's not good either because nicotine also suppresses your appetite. So you come out of the addiction and you actually want to eat more anyway. And of course, this, this helps that other part of it so people gain weight after they quit. But we would tell them to cut straws the length of cigarettes and then take them and suck on the straw because there's a nerve plexus in the back of the throat that when, it's, when it hits my ear, it tells the brain that you actually smoke, the brain thinks it's still smoking. But that doesn't solve anybody's problem, but it can help them with this piece of it. Yeah, they have an electric cigarette. 
They have electricity. They got some fancy stuff actually that's gonna come out. Um, probably made by the tobacco industry. Um, <laughs> um, but you are. They are coming out with some some new some new new things to help you quit smoking. Um, but this is why when you're dealing with these things, you gotta you gotta gotta break them up into pieces and look at what else is going on. Um, and then what we would also do to deal with the emotional part of this, because again, memory is also emotional. I would have them get 20 index cards. And this works for any bad habit, any addiction. 20 index cards, because there's 20 cigarettes in a pack, so I always say 20. And on one side, you write Bible promises. And I would literally tell these veterans, whether they were Christians or not, I would say Bible promises or motivational thoughts. And of course, they don't have any motivational thoughts, so they use the Bible. So, um, you know, I'd say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or the love of Christ constraineth us. And, you know, you can think of all kinds of psalms and words from Paul and words from Jesus. I'm with you even to the end of time. And you put them on one side of each of those index cards. And then on the other side, have them write one reason to stop smoking. I want to be alive to see my daughter married. I want to be alive to see my granddaughter graduate from college or high school. Um, I want to, you know, fulfill a promise I made to my mother before she passed. You, you put the reasons on the other side of the card. And all you tell them is, okay, you, you, if you're going to smoke, that's fine while you're trying to slow down your smoking. But before you have a cigarette, I want you to read one of those cards, both sides, before you smoke. What does that do? It's a reminder. It does, it, it, it breaks this, the emotional side of the habit. It slowly wears it down by, because one cigarette, let's be honest, it won't kill you. One of them won't. One piece of apple pie won't kill you. You get my point? But you, something has to work comprehensively to make every single cigarette dangerous. You get the point? And that's what those cards do. And also to build an emotional buffer for the person so that they have ammunition with which to fight the addiction. Spiritual ammunition is what you need. Amen? I mean, you need just, just, you know, just saying, hey, hey, you know, just do it, Nike, and then put it on one side of the card. There's nowhere near as good to me as I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So you read the two sides, and it actually begins to move you away from the addiction. These are not, and, and one thing is, these are not overnight, necessarily overnight product processes. I mean, some people fortunately quit very quickly. There are other people who are going to struggle with addictions for months. The trick is consistency, staying on top of it and staying consistent with fighting it with all of these little different tools. The other thing we do, of course, is that they should drink, you know, if they're going, if, if, for smokers especially, which if you're going to smoke 10 cigarettes for the day, you need to drink eight tall glasses of water. You drink as many tall glasses of water. Why? Because after a while, they get tired of drinking water, and it's like, okay, I'm not gonna, I'll smoke nine, so I'm gonna, I won't have to drink 10 glasses of water, I won't have to drink nine. And you make the cigarette a burden in some way. You tie it to being a burden. And the reason that that works, it's working actually on a, as a, on a public health level is because now that we've forced smokers outside to smoke, you know how many people quit simply because they have to get up and walk outside at work to smoke now? They can't smoke inside of a restaurant. They can't smoke inside of almost anywhere. They can't smoke inside their houses, many of them. Now there's a law, I think that may have passed or is gonna pass, that if there's a child in the car, you can't smoke in your own car. So think about it, all of a sudden, the work it takes to get the cigarette in your mouth and smoke it becomes so much that it begins to be the default is just to forget smoking. And, and it, what, the way that you break the uh, uh, addiction like nicotine is that you stretch the time periods in between cigarettes. Someone tells you they only smoke two or three cigarettes a day, they're either lying or they're actually not addicted. 
And they could actually just get, they should be able to just walk away from it. Because you need it, 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 nicotine doesn't last in your brain very long. So if they're smoking 10 or 12 or 15 cigarettes a day, you want to get them from 15 to 8 to 5 and move them and try and do it rapidly over a week or two. Get them way down to zero and then employ all of these different tactics. Praying before they smoke. Have them pray before they smoke their cigarette. Because what you tell them is don't smoke. But what you, that's not the way you break addictions. You break addictions by adding a new behavior to replace the old one. And this, this, this outline exactly shows that. If you really want people to break an addiction, add a new behavior and let the new behavior supplant the old one. So if you want people to stop smoking, make them have to read the card first. Why? Because eventually reading the card will become the behavior, hopefully, and not the smoking. You get it? And that's the way you begin to change behaviors. Um, let me read this quote from Ellen White and then we'll break. It says, what the child sees and hears is drawing deep lines upon the tender mind. This is the quote I was talking about earlier. Which no after circumstances in life can entirely efface. Repeated acts in a given course become habits. These may be modified by severe training, but look at what she says, but are seldom changed. And modern science backs this statement up 100%. We now know that it literally, from an electron microscope, from a microscopic standpoint, literally lines are made in the brain when these neuronal pathways are strengthened. Literally. And once they're strengthened, they're like grooves in the brain. And you, in order to overcome this groove, you got to dig a deeper groove. You got to make a new habit that's better. This is why I talk about fighting the fight of faith and not the fight of works. It's better that you make your new behavior, prayer, Bible study, hiking, <laughs> drinking enough water, moving, and really faith-based things that will support your faith, rather than say, okay, I'm going to stop doing the old groove. Because guess what happens? You fail a lot more. But when you say, no, I'm just going to build a better groove that connects me to Christ, now the spiritual power of Jesus, the love of Christ constraineth us, it kicks in and actually changes the behavior for you. And you don't have to grit your teeth and, and fight to try and change the behavior. God steps in and does it for you. And I've had many people, who, when they finally said, okay, I give up, Lord. I can't quit. I can't do that. I can't stop doing it. I just turn it over to you. And they just focus on God and don't worry about the behavior. They get victory. Because you can't focus on yourself and really have change. You've got to focus on God. But as evidence, a lot of times we do focus on ourselves too much. We focus on what we are doing. We need to focus on what God's doing and focus on what God wants us to do and read and accepting what he wants us to do as, as truth. And then say, now, Lord, I'm powerless to do this. But, Lord, you can do this through me and let God take over and do it for us. All right, we're going to break now. Let's just uh, stand and have a word of prayer. And we'll finish all of this uh, this afternoon. By your heads, Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study addiction and the mind that you so wonderfully made, Lord. Help us, Father God, to grow in understanding and in truth. And Father God, let us not only be able to apply these things to our lives, but Father God, also help us to be better ministers and servants of yours in helping your children who are locked in the bondage of addiction to break free. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www 
www.audioverse.org.